0: For tonight, we're in James chapter 4, and I'm going to read a little bit from where we left off last time I was with you, verses 1 through 7, and then we will pray and pick it up at verse 8. So James chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members, in other words, in your flesh? He says, You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scriptures says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. And therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, and then verse seven, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So, uh, on our last time through these verses here, we just made note of the fact that a life in the flesh or a life of the world, this is what James is talking about here in the first part of chapter four, is both incomplete and incompatible with God. It is incomplete in the sense that he says here, it's never satisfying. That's why he uses the terms you don't have, you can't obtain. He repeats it again. You don't have, he says you don't receive. He says, because a life in this world is incomplete and it's also incompatible with God. Friendship with the culture is incompatible with God. Now we need to be acquaintances with the world, just not friends of the world. You know, we have to we have to integrate our, ourselves with the world just enough to be light and salt that we can influence it for Christ. But, you know, when you think of the idea of a friend, a friend is someone that you share common values with. A friend is someone that you share common ideals with and, and you have like interests. And let me tell you something, as a Christian, uh, you know, the closer we get to the return of Christ... There's going to be a complete clash between what you believe is right and the world believes is right, between your ideals and the world's ideals, between your interests and the world's interests. And so while we have to still integrate and socialize and be acquaintances with the world, we just aren't supposed to take it to the level of friendship because james says that friendship with the world is enmity towards god as we just read that you cannot be both a friend of the world and a friend of god that if in fact you are a friend of the world that is that you like and share interests and ideals and values with the world system and the culture james says in reality that makes you an enemy of god because these things are often diametrically opposed to the values and, and standards and ideals of God. So one cannot say, well, I love God and I serve God, but I love the world and I serve the world. You can't do both. And so James is challenging us as Christians. if Friendship with the world is enmity towards God. So it's, it's both an incomplete life. You know, living, living for the world is satisfactory to only a temporal level. But otherwise it's it leaves you very empty. The world promises a lot, but delivers little and and so it's an incomplete and it is also an incompatible life, uh, incompatible with god and then and then there in, in verse seven, he talks about how we need to resist the devil, and he will flee from you and and last time we were together, I made mention of here in chapter four, verse one, verse four, and verse seven. He talks about the flesh, the world, and the devil, and those three things are always working in concert against us as Christians. Our own flesh, okay, our own appetites that have not been surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, those things are going to be in conflict with our lives for Christ, uh, the world and the world system, and then, of course, The reality of of a devil and and satan in this world who was always working against us so that's where we left off let's pray and then we'll pick it up there at verse eight and and as i pray tonight i want to pray uh for our vacation bible school we're halfway through the week and we've had over 900 children here and many of you have been serving them so we appreciate you praise the lord um, and those who are really tired aren't even here tonight so we give them grace but we want to just pray for this week of vacation bible school and just the opportunity we have to just you know love your kids and um encourage them and and minister to many children who are here from the community who, who don't normally go to church so it's a great opportunity for us to just influence them with with the gospel so let's just pray as we're at this midweek point here for vacation bible school lord we just thank you for the opportunity to gather here in your house tonight to open up your word and we just pray for fresh eyes to see as we read through james four just what you would have us to learn tonight thank you for your tenderness with us and your your grace toward us and we just thank you for the hundreds of children who are here this week and for all the many volunteers that have given up time, some many of them taken off time from work to be able to serve here. We pray for strength and energy for them. We thank you for Pastor Ken and for the whole team uh, back in children's ministry who do such a great job week in and week out and we just ask lord for great opportunities as we just present the gospel to children that many who have never heard about jesus would open their young hearts to the truth of who he is and invite you in lord as savior and we just thank you for the opportunity to just be able to share the love of jesus with with children and how valuable children are to you, how every life is precious to you, Lord. And so we, we thank you for this week. We pray for just continued uh, grace and favor over the week of Vacation Bible School, and we just give you glory and thanks in advance. In Jesus' name, we pray, and everybody said, amen. So here in James chapter 4, let me continue reading verse 8 down through verse 10. James writes, "Draw near to God... And he will draw near to you. He says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Well, not the most, you know, uplifting words there, but nevertheless, strong exhortations. Where he talks about drawing near to God Cleansing your hands Purifying your hearts He refers to the recipients of this letter uh, Who, by the way, are believers scattered throughout Asia Minor So James's letter gets circulated throughout Asia Minor among the church And he refers to them And, you know, we personalize this We put ourselves, we insert ourselves always in Scripture So that we can personalize it for ourselves Sinners, we are um, double-minded. Sometimes there's this duplicitous nature in us, um, and and so this whole section here between verses eight, nine, and ten is is really a section that where James emphasizes here the vertical, which is our relationship with the Lord, and so he talks here about drawing near to God, and he talks about cleansing your hearts, purifying uh, your your uh, or cleansing your hands and purifying your hearts and. The language there in verse nine about lament and mourn and weep and you know stop laughing and and you ought to be turning your joy to gloom. It's not that he's a downer. It, it's that he's emphasizing here a couple of things. And the first thing is he's challenging us to be to be sorry over sin. And that's why he uses these words lament and mourn and weep. He he wants he wants us to be convicted. And to come under conviction wherever and whenever we sin, and it's not just enough to feel sorry about your sin. He actually calls us to action there. The other part that he calls us to is basically to repent and and to turn to God for forgiveness. And that's the part about purifying your 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 hearts and cleansing your hands and uh, um, humbling yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And so he he calls us to sorrow over sin, and he calls us to repent and to turn to God for forgiveness. David would write in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, he says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Like, how can we even approach God? And then he adds, but he who has clean hands and a pure heart, he who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. So, We're called to get right with God. And that's the part that James is emphasizing here. He's talking about the vertical, you know, drawing near to God, cleansing and purifying and feeling sorry over our sin and not, you know, not laughing about our sin, but being sorry about our sin. You know, Peter would preach in Acts recorded in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. He says, repent then and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. I love that verse. Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And and so this is what we're we're called to, humbling ourselves, verse 10, in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Um, Pride is destructive. Jesus even talks about how everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And so we need to humble ourselves before the lord. We need to be contrite. We need to be broken over sin We need to be convicted and sorry about sin and come before the lord Then and ask him to purify hearts and to cleanse us And, and you know the beautiful thing is we're approaching a father who loves us and who is Quick to forgive us because he he said back earlier in the chapter verse six, but he gives more Grace, how many of you are thankful for the more grace that comes from god? Amen. And so, you know As much as we sin as much as we should feel sorry for our sin as much as we should grieve about our sin and be contrite and broken and humble before god the good news is you know what makes that so much easier to do is is to be reminded of the fact that we are approaching a gracious father who is loving towards us and forgiving towards us and merciful towards us you know sometimes sometimes the enemy wants to you know deceive us into thinking you know don't bother asking for forgiveness because you know you've been around the block a thousand times and god's not going to forgive you again and again and again yes he will and because he is gracious towards us where sin abounds grace abounds even more and so our lord is forgiving and merciful but james calls us here to get right with god and and he calls us to you know recognize the vertical And then in the next section, verses 11 and 12, he talks about the horizontal. Now he's going to move here about our relationship with one another. Look at verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver, capital L, that's a Lord, who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? So a couple of things that he says here in our relationship with one another on the horizontal is, first thing he says is, don't speak evil of one another. Don't speak evil of one another. And the Greek word there for speaking evil is katalelia. And katalelia is from Two Greek words, kata, meaning down, and leleo, meaning to speak. So it literally means don't speak down about somebody. You know, you, you know how your mom taught, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. And, and so, okay, sometimes you're speechless around a few people. But all right, that's better than talking down about them or talking down to them. That's evil speak. And we need to guard our tongues. And James, you know, has a lot to say about speech and, you know, taming the tongue. And, and uh, you know, all of chapter 3 pretty much was, was about taming the tongue and watching what we say. And, you know, don't, don't go to church and, and praise the Lord with with your mouth and then turn around and, and curse, because that's, that, again, is a duplicitous nature. And and the same thing applies to the way that we should be towards one another Don't be coming into church and praising god with your mouth and then turning around and speaking evil of other people That's that's not a good use of the tongue that god's given you. So don't speak evil. Don't speak down about people And then the other thing he says there in in these verses is don't judge one another because basically in doing so you position yourself in the place of the law and the lawgiver. You know, when we, when we judge people, we are standing in the place of the law, and we are standing in the place of the Lord himself, who was the lawgiver, which is why James adds there in verse 12, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. In other words, and you and I aren't that lawgiver. There's only one, that's the Lord. And so then, that's why he asks rhetorically, who are you to judge another? Because there's only one lawgiver, and it ain't you, and it ain't me. Now, Something important, when, when, when we talk about, you know, not judging others, and that's what this section is speaking of here in part, um, sometimes people misunderstand the whole concept of judging one another, and, and they just kind of, with a broad stroke, think then that all forms of judgment are wrong, which isn't true. Uh, And, and, and thus people who believe that all forms of judgment are wrong are quick to quote scripture. Even if they don't know scripture, they know this much. Here it is. You ever heard somebody say this? I'm sure. Or have you ever said this? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Who are you to judge? You know, the Bible says, don't judge. You're judging me. Don't judge. Okay. Let's just get some context on the whole concept of judging, okay? Let me, let me, let me just remind us. Not all judgment is wrong. I'm going to read from Matthew 7. You can turn there if you'd like, but you can just listen from Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. I want you to listen to what Jesus said about judgment, because I I want to balance the whole subject of of judging one another by by taking into context, um, you know, other passages of Scripture, so, so we can carefully understand this subject. So this is what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. He says, Judge not, lest you be judged for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. Now, let's stop Reading for just a moment, there's something else very important. He adds, but the first part of this is this warning about you know don't don't be looking at somebody else and pointing out their faults when in fact you have the same faults or at least similar faults because that's hypocrisy and that's why he says you hypocrite. But now listen to the rest of of verse five of Matthew chapter seven. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, question. Doesn't that mean then that Jesus is saying not necessarily all judgment is wrong, but that there's a right way to judge? And based on Matthew 7 verses 1 through 5, what Jesus is basically saying are two things, and this is an important thing. What he's saying is that we are to make right judgments, meaning without hypocrisy, that's number one, and number two, with the intent of helping a brother or sister who was doing something wrong. See, not all judgment is wrong. In other words, if if you if you see that someone is clearly doing something wrong, And you as a brother or sister don't intervene enough to call them out in love, making first check of your own heart that you're not doing the same thing and thus be guilty of hypocrisy. You see, when you step into somebody else's life to help them, you have to actually make a judgment. You have to make an assessment. You have to make an evaluation. Don't think all judgment is wrong. Don't think that, well, I can't ever speak into somebody else's life because the Bible says, judge not lest I be be judged wait a minute yes the bible says that jesus just said it i quoted it from matthew 7 but what he says is there's an order there's a right way and there's a wrong way the wrong way is with hypocrisy we have no business pointing something out in somebody else's life if we're guilty of the same or similar thing that's the first thing jesus says don't be a hypocrite about it but he says deal with your own issues so that then you can be in a better position to lovingly help a brother or sister. But to do that involves some measure of judgment. So we, we don't throw the baby out of the bathwater and think, well, all judgment is wrong. We're never supposed to judge another person. Yet yeah, there, there's a right way to do it. Now the question then becomes, well then, how am I supposed to recognize whether or not they're actually doing something wrong in order to interfere or step into the situation and so with that in mind there's an important distinction i want to quote again from jesus this is now john 7 verse 24 where he says do not judge according to appearance but judge with righteous judgment do you notice that out of john seven twenty four, jesus actually calls us to make judgments He says it's our responsibility as believers, if we really care about other people, to actually step into the situation and at times actually make judgments. So don't think to yourself, well, we're never supposed to get involved in somebody else pointing out some. No, no, no. Jesus says, do not judge by mere appearances, but judge with right Judgment. So there's an important distinction here, and I want to point this out, especially for those of you taking notes, write this down. There's an important distinction. There's a difference between being judgmental, which is wrong, and making right judgments, which is right, which is what God, Jesus calls us to there in John seven twenty four. There's a difference between being judgmental. That's wrong. We shouldn't be judgmental, but we should make right judgments. Now, What's the difference between those two, and how can we know whether we're being judgmental or whether we are making right judgments, which is what Jesus actually calls us to do? So, here's something that I hope will be helpful to you. This is the difference Being judgmental is the evaluation of appearance based on personal standards, making right judgments is the evaluation of actions based on God's standards. You see that difference? Being judgmental is when we play the game of evaluating people based on what it appears to be. And we don't even know all the facts. Appearances are dangerous. When people start making assessment of other people's lives based on appearance without knowing all the facts, and we measure those things Based on our personal standards or like our personal preferences, that's being judgmental Okay, you might have certain convictions about something that is not necessarily spelled out in scripture All right, whatever it might be There's a number of things that you might have personal convictions about that's not necessarily Clearly spelled out as a standard in god's word. It's just your personal conviction The danger becomes when you start to impose that personal conviction on other people and you may not do it verbally But in your heart you're doing it because you're looking at what they do and you're thinking to yourself Well, that's not right. I would never do that. And then you become judgmental in your heart towards them So being judgmental is evaluating appearances based on personal standard and let me just caution All of us myself included there's a real danger in drawing conclusions based on appearance and it's done a lot of damage to people where where you don't have all the facts but you know you're gathering enough information based on appearance or hearsay or something and you're drawing conclusions Uh, let me tell you in case you haven't learned the hard way (laughs) when you start to evaluate people Based on hearsay or appearance and not having all the facts because it's not clearly displayed by action It's very very dangerous to draw conclusions You need to refrain From making judgments and drawing conclusions Based on mere appearances You, you, you may not have all the information right Okay, you may not have all the information right Now on the other hand if someone is clearly displaying action, and I, don't, I didn't want to spell it out and delineate it, but, you know, it could be verbal action. It could be, you know, lifestyle action. It could be something that is clearly seen, noted, visible, uh, undeniable action. And it's in conflict with something clearly spelled out in God's word as God's standard. Not your own personal preference, but God's standard. All right? All right then we have an obligation. And the obligation first is, okay, I want to examine my own heart. I want to make sure I don't have wrong motives in confronting somebody. I want to make sure I'm not guilty of the same kind of thing going on in my own heart. If so, I'm not qualified to speak into this person's life. And so someone else is going to have to do that. All right? You get through the hypocrisy test first. doesn't say It isn't to say that any of us is perfect. None of us is. But at least... We're not going to be hypocritical because we're guilty of the same thing or something similar. We, we might have on our, on our own issues that we're working on, right? So as long as there's not hypocrisy then, and it's clearly a violation in some kind of act or verbal thing of God's standard, then out of love for brother or sister, we should go to them. We should go to them privately. And, and you know, we should confront. We, we should talk honestly. We should talk openly. We You know, we shouldn't, again don't look down on them don't speak down on them don't speak evil of them don't gossip about it don't start telling other people you know what we need to get together and have a prayer meeting for so-and-so because i think so-and-so is doing this and that you know oh my goodness how christians can get together and wrap it in christian ease and and what it really is is gossip and slander and backbiting and all that kind of nonsense i mean listen just go to a brother or sister just privately between you and him or you and her and say listen this is clear what you're doing. It's pretty obvious. And this is a violation of scripture. And let me, let me just even show you some verses here that weigh on my heart. And can we just pray about this? Because I love you enough to be honest with you, to tell you the truth. And I've said this before. I think one of the highest forms of respect you can show someone is to speak the truth to them and to speak the truth in love. Because you care enough. So when James writes here, I just wanted to go off on that little side tangent. Because when James writes here about, you know, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge, we need to balance it with all of Scripture and take into consideration other things that Jesus says about judging. That there's actually a right way and a wrong way. But it doesn't mean that we should completely check out and never speak into somebody else's life. There's a distinction between being judgmental. And which is wrong, and making right judgments, which is right. And we do it for the sake of people that we love, examining our own hearts first. Everybody clear on that? Good? Okay. Let's keep reading verse 13. Let's finish out the chapter. He says, "'Come now, you who say, "'Today or tomorrow we will go in such and such a city, "'spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. "'Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow?' For what is your life? It is even a vapor. Circle that word. Some of your translations say mist. It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So let's save that last verse for the end, but in the last few minutes I have left. Verses 13 through uh, 16, uh, he, he speaks here about the uncertainty of life. And he, 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 he's, he's not denying the fact, I'm sure, that there's anything wrong with having plans and setting goals. But what he's addressing is the issue of, don't be presumptuous about tomorrow because none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. And we, we need to live each day to its fullest. Again, sure, plan, prepare. I hope you have, you know, you're looking towards retirement. And you're thinking about, you know, a retirement plan. It's, it's not to say, well, you know, only be concerned about today, but it, he's simply saying, don't be presumptuous about the guarantee of tomorrow, because we don't have that guarantee. And so he says, it's better just to kind of say, you know, if the Lord wills, we'll do this. If the Lord wills, we'll do that. I'm not always sure what the Lord wills for tomorrow, or next year, or five years down the road. And and so we just want to be faithful to, to today, and and not and not think to ourselves, oh yeah, yeah, uh, we're guaranteed tomorrow because we're not. We don't know. And he likens life to a vapor, or again, some of your translations say like a mist. Um. It vanishes. This is the temporal nature of life. We, we forget sometimes how precious life is. And we forget sometimes how fragile life is. Um, we do, you know, God knows the beginning of our days from the end, but we don't. And, and so we have to live in such a way that we recognize, not guarantee tomorrow life is like a mist in fact the bible just wanted to point out a, a few things that the bible compares life to number 1 is a vapor a mist that we're, what we're reading here in James chapter 4:14 4, but also in Psalm 78:39 life is like a passing breath it says in that passage for he remembered that we were but flesh a breath that passes away and does not come again or life is also in the Bible compared to withering grass. In First Peter 1, 24 and 25, it says, Because all flesh is as grass and, uh, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And then the question becomes, for all of us, when this life is over, as short as it is, that's the comparison in all these terms it's like vapor it's like mist it's like breath that's gone it's like grass where will you go where will you spend eternity now every single one of us needs to settle that if you're here tonight you're on you're unsettled about that we need to we need to get that settled even before you leave if you, if you ask some people, what is life like after death? What is your concept of life after death? You're going to get a variety of answers. If you ask a Jehovah's Witness, for example, what is life like after death? They, they tell you something called soul sleep. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that when you die, your body goes in the ground and you stay there. Your soul is asleep in the ground until the return of Christ and then you come to life. If you ask a Hindu what happens to you when you die they will talk to you about reincarnation and their belief system is that when you die you get reincarnated and not always as another human being you could become reincarnated as an animal you could be reincarnated as an object which is the why i mean think about think about just the the insanity of that okay i'm going to use that word because you if I've never been to Calcutta, India, but just look at pictures of abject poverty and starvation in the streets of Calcutta, India. Why? While cows walk freely all around, which could be a delicious hamburger for somebody, but why don't they kill the cows and feed the starving children on the streets of Calcutta? Because that cow could be Uncle Charlie. That cow could be Uncle Charlie, who's been reincarnated as a cow. We don't want to kill the cow, because then we'll be, we'll be killing Uncle Charlie. Kill the cow. <laughs> Feed some people. But see, in that religious form, they don't want to do that, because that's what reincarnation is about. All right, let me tell you what the Bible says. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, and he talks about how to be present, to be absent from the body, the 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. He says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. All right? What Christianity teaches is that when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, here's what happens at death. Your body separates from your spirit. Your spirit leaves your body and goes to be with the Lord. Now your body gets buried in the ground and returns to dust. Your, your physical body is composed of the same 17 chemical elements as dirt. Hydrogen, oxygen, and 15 other trace chemicals. So you're created from the dust of the earth, and to the dust of the earth you shall return. Whether it's natural decomposition over about 30 years, or whether it's through cremation, which is about 30 minutes. Take your pick, it doesn't really matter. You're going back to dust. Alright? But here's the beauty in knowing Christ as your Savior, upon death, your spirit separates from your body, your spirit goes to be with the Lord, your, your body returns to dust. And then on one glorious day, when the Lord returns, the dead in Christ shall rise. Now what that means is, your glorified body comes up out of the grave, reunites with your spirit, so that you can be then like Christ. Christ because Christ received a glorified body after he rose from the dead and we shall be like him the bible teaches us so one day we'll get a glorified body and and it will never perish spoil or fade never sag or droop or ache all right never break all right and if you're young you can't appreciate what i'm saying but the older you get you appreciate praise god you get a new tent Amen. There's a reason why the Bible compares the human body to a tent. Because if you've ever been camping, you know the parallel, you know the similarities. Tents leak. Tents smell. Tents are fragile. They tear. All kinds of things, okay? But the Bible tells us that one day we get a glorified body that's imperishable, unites with our spirit, and so we shall be with the Lord forever. So as, as much as death is an unknown for us as Christians, it's just a transition. You know what? When Billy Graham died, uh, his son Franklin talked about how, you know, his dad always mentioned that, you know, when I die, it's, it's, not the, it's not the end of me, right? He says, it's just, I got a new address. And that's the way it is for a believer. We get a new address. So we can be with the lord forever And so nothing to fear It's an unknown and in that it seems a little fearful but to know what scripture teaches us That to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord Is the glorious hope of the church through jesus christ our lord and if you are unsettled about that How about we settle that before we go and i'll leave the last verse from chapter four till next time Let's pray. Let's pause here father. We come before you thankful for jesus christ our lord who died on a cross to set us free to pay the price for our sin to pay the debt that we owed and through faith in him we can have our sins forgiven and we can be made right with you and in that right relationship with you through jesus christ we can know without a doubt because of what your word teaches us that we will go to be with you forever when we die that heaven is our eternal home. And even though the, the unknown aspect of death might frighten us, Lord, we thank you that in Christ there's the assurance of what happens when we die. Our spirit separates from our body, and we go to be with you in heaven. And then one day you give us a glorified body, just like what you have, Lord. And so thank you for the hope that we have. And thank you for the joy that we have. And thank you for our eternal home that awaits us. And I pray right now for anybody who's uncertain about what will happen to them when they die. And I pray right now, Lord, in Jesus' name, that they might open their hearts to the truth of Jesus Christ. That they might invite you in to be Lord and Savior asking for forgiveness of sins, that that you might be Lord and Savior of their lives. I'm going to pause in my prayer right now, just still with your heads bowed. And I just want to invite you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, and you're unsettled about what happens to you when you die, get it settled tonight, right now, before you leave here. And so if that applies to you, I'm just going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Just right where you're seated, you can whisper this prayer. Just pray this with me. Just whisper it. Just say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died on a cross for my sins. I open my heart to you tonight. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. To cleanse my heart. To come into my life. I surrender to you as Lord and Savior. I commit my life to you. I thank you that you loved me so much that you died on a cross for me. And I receive by faith the free gift of salvation by trusting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Thankful, For the hope and the promise of going to heaven when I die. Whenever that happens, I'm ready now, Lord. I'm ready now because I've surrendered my life to you. In Jesus' name, we pray. And Lord, all of us who have that hope now, we thank you and we glorify you. That you've opened heaven to us Through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. And everybody said, Amen Amen and amen.